Frank Berry's 2017 film Michael Inside was a terrifying look at how a young man through a petty act can get caught up in criminality both inside and outside the Irish prison system. Berry's new film Aisha turns its lens on the Irish immigration system through the experience of the title character Aisha, a young Nigerian woman who lives in a government-run asylum centre in Dublin. She's waiting on her official interview in the hope of getting permission to stay in Ireland. She has a job in a beauty salon and she keeps in touch with her mother in Nigeria, sending home money. But in Ireland, she's up against state bureaucracy, an inflexible centre manager and the Gardaí Síochána. Her only friend is Conor Healy, a young man recently out of prison himself. The film stars Letitia Wright as Aisha and Emmy Award winner for The Crown, Josh O'Connor, as the aforementioned Conor Healy. Delighted to have Frank Berry with me in studio here in Dublin and Josh O'Connor joining us on the line from, from London this evening. And I'll start with you, Frank. Um, and Because when, when, you, when you think of Michael Inside and the fact that it tackled, in some ways, the young man, Michael, who gets pulled into the gets pulled in very small criminal act and suddenly he's involved in, in deep criminality when he when he goes into prison. Now here you, you've turned your, your lens, as I said, onto the immigration system. Were there parallels in your mind even as you set out to make this film? Yeah, it was it was that film where it was Michael Inside where um, this film began really because I was uh, researching the Irish prison system um, and as I researched, I learned that the Irish prison system and the Irish immigration system were both run by the same government department, uh, the Department of Justice. And I just wanted to know more, really. So um, I just started researching and, and uh, wanted to educate myself on what the reality is for somebody who comes to Ireland seeking international protection. You know, a system that exists in my name as an Irish citizen. And... Um, I, I went on a journey of research, primary research, um, and listening to people's experiences, collaborating, um, and yeah, that was it. it research hmm. began in twenty seventeen, early twenty seventeen. So around about the time that Michael Inside was was on, so on and showing in cinemas that's, around the that's country. Right, yeah, and just on the subject of the title character of Aisha herself, played by Letitia Wright. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that, was there a kind of an essence of truth in the particular story you were telling about a young Nigerian woman here yeah. or is it an amalgamation? What, yeah. what is that? How fictional is it? Yeah, it, basically I try and draw from real experiences as much as I can in, in so far as I, I try not to make anything up at all really with, with the film. So um, it involves listening to a lot of people uh over a long period of time and then what happens is sometimes uh, as, as, as the research goes on people start to say very similar things people who, who don't even know each other and the picture of this of, of the film the story starts to emerge starts to come into focus for me uh, as time goes by so what I do is I listen and then I go back to my uh, desk and I, and I, I, I write down what I've heard and what, what, is, uh, what is very kind of um, registered with me very powerfully and then I go back Back and we mm. and we read it uh, out loud, and then uh, we discuss it, and and that process of 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 it's a dialogue really that goes on for for a long period of time, um, right up until the very very end, right up until even in post production we have uh, uh, we have had a screening in the Lighthouse Cinema of a rough cut um, uh, with with a, the uh, you know my amazing collaborators that I've known for years now, um, and the dialogue starts at the very beginning mm. and and goes right until the very end. 
So if, in, in, what you're saying to a certain extent is that this is a more or less a true story told in a, in, in a filmic fashion. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, bring Josh in at this uh, point if we could. Josh, was hey. it, what was it that uh, attracted you to this particular script, Josh? Lovely to have you with us this evening, by the way. Um, was it the sort of thing that uh, Frank was talking about there, the, the particular subject that was being tackled, or was it the character of Connor? Um, <clears throat> thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it was... Um it was a combination of those, and 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 Frank actually, and um, Frank was. Uh, I'd seen Michael inside, and was um, and re- like incredibly impressed, and found it um, heartbreaking and and incredibly real, and um, yeah, almost documentary like. I mean, the, the performances were so so brilliant, and um, I think Frank and I got on a phone call got on a zoom um at the time i'd read i'd read aisha and loved it and frank and i got on a call and i could tell immediately having seen his film and having spoken to him it was you know frank is as he's just explained he is someone who's sort of <clears throat> really takes the time and care to um to get these things right and accurate and um yeah and then but 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 kind of i suppose the combination of for one, I think right now it's um, and very much so right now in in the UK, um, at least, and I'm sure the same in in Ireland is um, you know the the conversation about um, how we treat um, refugees, migrants coming to this, to 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 our shores is really kind of relevant and really quite shocking actually, and so that felt very important to me. Um, and as you say, yeah, Connor. I, th- I think for, on a kind of in terms of my own character, I think I just I, I really I really felt that Frank had kind of captured um, someone in Connor that felt like a very calming and non-intrusive person in Aisha's life, and I really liked that he. Uh, I felt that he had resisted, and I I hope we we did mm. resist when we in the performances resisted anything almost over dramatic and almost too um almost too filmic in some ways i think that the temptation sometimes is to kind of fall into uh you know a love story or something like that and of course there is so much love there but it's a sort of um it's a friendship it's like a bond yeah. between two people in pain and so that was really yeah, it's that kind of threw me to it. It's a kind of a caring love. We, we should explain that yeah. that Connor is a he's a security. He's working in security in one of the mm-hmm. centres where where Aisha is being kept. And, and I want yeah. to play a clip which gives us a sense of he is this very gentle guy, one of the few gentle guys in in that particular uh, centre. Mm-hmm. It has to be said. Here he is in what is more or less their first conversation uh, with each other. Uh, in in the film, first proper conversation with each other in the film yourself, uh, Josh as as Connor right. and Letitia Wright uh, as the character of Aisha, and there's a very interesting statement about he he knows that he's doing the wrong thing even by talking to her. Let's have a listen to the clip, and we'll get a sense of um, how much he's already breaking the rules. <clears throat> Don't know why he can't get you so well, Phil. Costs more, less profit for him. Have you heard from that family? I just do what I'm told. Could they have done it without you? How long were they here? Five years. Where are they now? In a detention centre in the UK. 
I didn't know I'd be doing stuff like that. Normally just do offices and warehouses. I would not to talk to you, so I don't know if he's know that. So he's don't try to get us to break the rules or whatever. So why are you talking to me? And that's Josh O'Connor and Letitia Wright in a scene there from Aisha, the Frank Berry film. Frank with me in studio. And Josh, joining me from London. Uh, Josh O'Connor, <laughs> what yeah. part of Dublin did you grow up in? <laughs> what an extraordinary um, accent you got there. <laughs> I, honestly, I haven't a clue. I mean, Frank says it's good and that's all that I need to hear. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I suppose, I don't know. The accent thing was a kind of terrifying thing to me it's sort of um it's terrifying because i guess you sort of you know it's, we, when we made this film we, we were all in i think we we're all in still in lockdown weren't we frank yeah I think. yes yeah we were still sort of locked down and i think <clears throat> i had two weeks um sort of um you know locked in my apartment um in dublin and frank and i and Letitia were talking on zoom and stuff and getting prepped um and, and yeah, and I, I just remember walking sort of, um, you know, once I, I was trying to, I was doing lots of act, uh, accent work with uh, a couple of brilliant people. And, and um, but I, I found myself, once I was allowed out, I just found myself walking around the town trying to listen to people and ah. talk to people. And I made friends with a guy called Danny who I met on the, on the streets. And he, he sort of, he might not have known it, but he was sort of helping me out a little bit. <laughs> he was your um, your major that, accent coach. Um, that, that was my main accent coach. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. and I mean, you, you hit that, and obviously that's an important aspect of things because if, if the accent is good, in some ways you don't notice it. It's only when the accent is bad yeah. that it becomes that it becomes a problem, and it certainly yours really hits the mark. And I think maybe specifically okay. choosing Dublin as opposed to some kind of generic accent was Irish accent was was the right way to go to that. But I'm I'm guessing that. There was a whole other side uh, in terms of the story that was being told here, in terms of these particular centres, that you wanted to research that aspect of things as well. Um, myself, myself, yeah. I mean, I did. I think we, again, we're really, um, we were really fortunate with Frank because Frank had done so much, you know, these, I think um, in my own experience, there's um, more often than not, you know, films, nowadays sort of you know you have a script and once it's written it's like all go and and things happen very quickly and I was really attracted to the idea that you know Frank had had taken um, a significant chunk of time to get you know get everything together and get it right and and so whilst you know Frank put us in touch with people and we talked to people and we had those conversations really you know Frank he's a humble man and he wouldn't admit it, but he sort of knew everything or he, or, you know, he knew as much as you can imagine about the sort of the policies behind the system and, um, and the injustices and the huge, the huge, um, uh, the huge blocks to really yeah. to, to a peaceful life. So yeah, we were very, um, fortunate to have Frank there. Well, when I hear you talking about the politics behind the systems, I'm hearing the man who said, I'm a Republican, I'm not interested in the royal family. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when, he, when he was first asked to audition <laughs> for the part of Prince Charles. I, I, I'm guessing the politics of this film, probably closer, of, of Aisha, closer to the politics <laughs> that you had to play in The Crown. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's sort of, you know, ultimately... 
ultimately, you know, my job isn't, I'm not in politics. And my job is to tell stories um, that are interesting and ultimately that have, um, you know, that have, that have, that have many levels and, um, and nuances. And it's not always straightforward, you know, I think that that sort of quote has sort of followed me around for a little bit. Like, you know, I'm a Republican. I am a Republican, but I don't dislike anyone in the royal family. I think they're all very, um, you know, I'm sure very nice people and do interesting things. And some of them probably aren't so nice and like any family. But um, but as an institution, I don't agree with it. And and likewise, in Aisha, I think this world is something that we don't talk about enough, really. And, And when we do talk about it, it seems to be. Um, with incredibly um, harsh and um, and divisive language, and so yeah. I think just the opportunity to tell a story that uh, that did have nuance and did have um, the trauma and the pain that people go through under these systems was um, I felt very fortunate, and yeah, sort of aligned, just happened to align with my own sort of political views and and how I see it, which yeah. which, which 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 was a help it sounds. Um, but Frank, yeah. I guess as as Josh points out there. The royal family, there are, I'm sure, we all are sure there are good people and bad people in any organisation. And similarly within this system as well. I mean, I'm thinking in particular about maybe some of the early scenes. There's a scene with Aisha where one of her friends has been taken away and mm-hmm. the, the, the handling by the Gardaí Shiakana as portrayed here, it's, it's fairly rough. I mean, how important was it for you? Is that fair, first of all, do you think? Or did you try? Did you want to strike a balance about the nature of the people working in these centres as well? Yeah, it, it has to be fair. It has to be uh, true and real. Otherwise, it undermines the aims of, of, uh, of all our work for the film. You know, we, our aim is to get as close to reality as possible, which is why the process involves so much listening and uh, so much kind of discussion. But I think it's, it's unfair to, to, uh, to vilify as well which makes it unreal um, it was a concern of mine from my last film as well Michael Inside you know um, I, it's very important to be uh, to be tr- to be fair so that that's why we have uh, a centre manager in the film who treats the centre like a business basically and uh, which is something I've heard I, I heard a lot is this this, you know? is this your Graham character yes correct yeah. yes yeah. Um, uh, but then uh, we have Dennis Conway after that who's more empathic and more more sympathetic um, who reminded me of a, a, a of a particular person and uh, and I, I you know I've met people who work in direct provision centres and some very very um, compassionate people yeah. working in, in the centres. And I think it's very important to put that across as well because otherwise the film is just, you know, it, it undermines, as I said, our, our aims, you know. Yeah, and indeed, I, I, I didn't pick up on it in, in the clip that we heard from you, Josh. It's one of the things that, that Connor says in that scene is, I'm not supposed to be talking to you, you know, mm. I, I, that he shouldn't be talking for fear that he might understand the situation of those seeking right. asylum. I guess that there are that is a, a kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because there has to be a kind of a distance, maybe like a prison warden has to have from the inmates in a, in a particular institution. And yet, you know, there's a human side to, to, to the story as well. There's a hard balance to strike, Frank. Yeah, um, I think uh, there's, there. you know, there has to be compassion. And uh, I think 
you know, when I heard that there was in some centres where, you know, the, there's separation between mm. the, the staff and the, the people living there, it just seemed like it's unnecessary to me, you know. I feel like any of those barriers that exist, you know, we have to ask ourselves, why are they there? Why, you know, why do these barriers exist? And they, they cause suffering and they cause pain. And, and there's a lot of people... Uh, suffering ind- indirect provision for these these um, these rules in, oh. in 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 the centres, and I think, you know, it's just it's you know when you're making a film like this, you have a responsibility to 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 be as true as you can and to and to uh, express what you've heard yeah. in in your in in the research, you know. And and I guess too, Josh, in the case of the Connor uh, uh, Connor Aisha relationship, as it begins to mm. grow, you know if that relationship could exist out of any examination of any particular system. There is a kind of a, there's a, it's, I don't want to say necessarily love story, but there's certainly a big friendship stroke love story being told in there as well. And that human side is important to the film. Yeah, well, I think, I think Frank's right. That ultimately, you know, we're, we're talking about, we're talking about an instant, we're talking about institutions that don't work, that don't function. And of course, in any institution that doesn't work or function, whether it's a, prov- a direct provision centre or, or the prison system, like in Michael Inside, I think inside of those institutions, we are looking at human, you know, human behaviour. And there will always be. And even, I mean, for, from my perspective, even the sort of the guy that runs, you know, runs that direct provision centre that ICE is in, you, of course, you, you know, you do see that these places are run like businesses. But you would hope, you would hope, and I think Frank is 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 someone who investigates these things. Is that you would hope that there is, there will always be, you know, a human aspect, and I think that's what Connor, hmm. you know, Connor has his own trauma, and I think, um, although very different, I think that there's a sort of, yeah, there's <clears throat> there's an acknowledgement of that there, and and it's, I guess Connor in some ways plays as a sort of as the audience in 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 some ways that a direct link maybe is looking in on the the absurdity of the system and and the pain that comes as an outcome as as um you know in direct response to that so um so yeah i think that i think that that that's that that was the biggest attraction to me is that yeah you know it's a it's a terrible system <clears throat> but if you start pinning it on the individuals that work within it um i think you 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 tend to you're, you're start, people would start to miss the point. Actually, yeah. the point is that the system is deeply flawed. Um, yeah, Let, yeah. let's have a listen to another clip, which I, I, I want to get into the, in some ways the style of the film. You mentioned this, that nothing that happens isn't true in some ways, Frank, that you, you wanted that. This is a clip about, we're about 20 minutes into the film at this stage, and Aisha, she has this job in a beauty salon, but when she comes back to the centre, she often does beauty treatments for the women uh, around the centre and you can see how that sort of thing would happen and of course it's a great moment for the particular people to chat to each other and let's hear them talk here about the direct provision system itself everybody's case is different whatever you say at times can get you out of that place into another place the following morning you are ready onto another centre mm. maybe they don't like you or maybe you talk too much Maybe you ask questions too much. Maybe you are flouting their rules and all those things. After two weeks, one month, you will find there is no chain in my hand. But I am a prisoner, you know. I'm not allowed to travel. Mm-hmm. Of course, I don't know anyone for myself, but you're not allowed to travel or overnight to sleep outside. 
when I came, we were not allowed to have microwave, fridge, uh, cookers, and all that, you know. And so, I it, how if I buy lollipop for my child, where am I going to put it? If he wants ice lolly, where am I going to put it? You know, such things. I would love to buy it, but I can't. The only time they'll give it to you in the hostel, it's when they buy it on that particular day, you know. How do I explain that to my child? I want to provide for my child. I want to work. I'm not allowed to work. I want to study. I'm not allowed to study. You know, such things. It's just a lot. Deportation is the painful thing ever. You're thinking, okay, I've been tortured back home. I came here for safety. And then I was traumatized inside these little rooms where I was living in a little prison. Now that I have to be free, I'm told that I am being deported. You know, mm. it's so, so painful. And I've seen people going through that. That's a clip from Aisha and actor Joshua Connor and director Frank Berry with me on the programme this evening. I, I wanted to play that clip, Frank, in particular, because when it happens in the film, I thought these, these to me, look like real women telling real stories about their real experience. I presume that's what we got. Yes. Um, yeah, uh, those, those uh, ladies are, uh, it's a, it's, they're, they're um, people who have, who have been through the direct provision system who I met on my research. And uh, what happens is the film kind of finds its way into a documentary space for a, a short mm. period in, in the film when, when Aisha is in the centre um, and uh, she's, she's um, uh, they're sitting in front of a mirror and they're do, she's doing their makeup um, but it's an opportunity for, for Aisha to listen and for, for the, the, you know these, these ladies to express themselves and, But getting that type of access because you may have been in a, in a building, a made up building for that but when you go down the country it looked to me as if we're, we're, in a, we're in an outside situation, mm-hmm. series of mobile homes that seem to make up this this other centre that Aisha travels to. Mm-hmm. How did you get that type of access? Because normally we don't get to see inside these centres at all. Yeah. Time. And, um, you know, the... the uh, I spent five years making this film and, you know, you, some people would say, you know, wow, okay, this, it's quite a small film, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's modest, but it's, uh, the, the time that is put into making the film is, is really not in terms of, it's not seen in terms of the scale of the film. It's not a big film, but it, I, I describe it as being, uh, the depth in the film, the depth of realism. And that's what takes the time and yeah. you forge, forge, you know, you, at the beginning, it's not really about uh, ga- getting information. It's about forming relationships and, and getting trust. And then you just get to know people very well. And then as time goes by, um, you know, you know, you, you, you know, possibilities emerge in filmmaking yeah. that, that, that you can, you know, you, you, yeah, you're, you're, you have collaborators and you have a team. Yeah. I know. suppose Letitia in particular had to deal with the, the, the documentary style of that. But I'm wondering from your side, Josh, uh, uh, mm. Frank brings up this idea of listening. It's one of the themes that comes up between the two characters of Connor and, and Aisha. In fact, both of them have their traumas and they really need to be listened to. And it's about the person opposite to them shutting up and, and, and listening. How did, how did that documentary style, would you say, feed into what you did as in an acting role? Yeah, well, I think, um, I think generally in my sort of um, 
I suppose in my limited experience of 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 any kind of you know anyone going through trauma or anything or anything similar, I think you know I'm, my my brother works in in the care system, and I all, I'm always <laughs> very inspired by how much of a listener he is and how brilliant he is at that. And I think that there is a sort of yeah, I suppose there's something yeah, I suppose there's something kind of um, um, inherent in the way that again frank wrote such a beautiful script and and so much of it was sort of was just mm. you know kind of ask, asking the right questions but doing it in a sort of gentle way i think i think that's why i kind of referred to connor as like a, a kind of quiet and peaceful type yeah. of uh, of guy yeah. you know he, he he sort of doesn't give up because i, I can he can tell that he, he that's what his role needs to be but um yeah, the instinct is to just listen. I think, and 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 often, often with this with this sort of subject, something again we forget to do is is actually just listen to people's experience, yeah. and then glean from that. So, um, yeah, it was certainly an important aspect to it. And just on a slightly lighter note, and not wanting to be flippant, <laughs> did Dominic West listen to you when it came to how to pray Prince Charles? Following on from you playing <laughs> Prince Charles, did you have um, any conversation with him? I had no conversation. I think we had a couple of we had a little a little text back and forth. But I, I know Dom a bit because we worked we worked together on um, something a few mm. years ago. Uh, he's great. I'm I'm so excited to watch it, and I'm sure he'll be brilliant. But yeah. no, he did. Yeah, he didn't call, but he definitely didn't need any advice from me. <laughs> yeah, I'd um, say that's so probably absolutely. what you would have told him. And and yeah. and uh, to finish up uh, with you, Frank. Obviously, the film has had its uh, world premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival in June, European premiere in London in October. How was it received and how excited are you to actually have it seen now at home and as part of this gala opening for the Cork International Film Festival? It's it's so exciting um, to, to finally, I mean, I've been making it for so long, yeah. <laughs> to finally cross that threshold and to and to bring it um, uh, to audiences. Um, it, you know, I'm, I'm really, really excited. I mean, the, the aim of the film is to create a space to talk, you know, about, about the issues in the film. Um, that happened with my previous films, you know, and I, I hope um, that this film uh, will, will, will do the same, you know. Yeah. Um, it was really interesting in Tribeca and in London because what happened was the conversation broadened out to immigration systems in general, you know, but at the very heart of the film, there's this human connection. You know, when, when, when people live together, community emerges, people connect and, and, and we just wanted to, uh, through, through the research and through the, all, all my conversations, um, uh, and all the, all the, all the work that we did, we just, it just distilled down to something yeah. very, very simple, which is a human connection in an inhumane system. Um, and we just look at what is, wh- how does the direct provision system affect this very simple human connection? And that that uh, resonated with international audiences, regardless of what yeah. the state barriers were in their particular region, you yeah. know, in, in, in their systems. Uh, and um, will you get a chance, Josh, to see it with an Irish audience? Do you think you'll get over for that? I certainly hope so. Me and Frank were just texting this weekend. I'm sadly unable to get to court, which is... Um, one of my favourite places in the world, and I would have loved to have been there. But um, yeah, I really hope so. I, um, I know that my pe- my parents. I'm the reason I can't come on Thursday. I'm off on on work, but my parents are coming down to London. I think um, from our hometown, and they're seeing seeing Aisha next week uh, as part of a, a festival in London. So so yeah, I can't wait to see it in front of an audience, and particularly 
get over yeah. to Ireland and see is it, it, is, there, is, there an, is there an Irish connection then in that O'Connor bit of the name there is I believe it is Cork somewhere ah there you um, go so yeah we've got the Irish connection for sure yeah, yeah well you, you, took, you did wise to stick with the Dublin accent maybe because the Cork <laughs> would tell you very quickly if you got that wrong Josh yeah. lovely. thanks so much for your generosity thanks with your time that. this evening thanks for being with us Thank that's uh, Josh O'Connor and with me in studio Frank Berry Aisha will be screened as I said as part of the Cork International Film Festival Thursday evening at the Cork Opera House and again on Friday evening a panel in partnership with the University College of Cork Equality Week at the Gate Cinema and for more information go to corkfilmfestival.org and Aisha will be available in cinemas and on Sky Cinema from November 17th. In an age dominated by social media, how can poetry be seen? Do we insist that the text is the thing or do we go back to its origins perhaps, re-explore its relationship to storytelling, picture painting and song? What should poetry do? That is the question poet Pat Boren asks at the Leaves Festival of Writing and Music in County Leash. The festival runs from tomorrow night, Wednesday the 9th, through until Saturday the 12th in Port Leash. Highlights include a celebration of 40 years of Salmon Press poetry, public interviews with novelists Claire Keegan, Ronan Hessian and Chef Rory O'Connell, poet and publisher of Daedalus Press. Uh, publish, uh, Pat Boren will be appearing on Saturday afternoon to give a talk called The Shape of Poetry and Pat joins me now. It's, it, you know, it's kind of, it's a fundamental question, isn't it? It is. What should poetry do, yeah, Pat? The funny Big thing question. Is, yeah, but the funny thing is, Sean, if I came in here and across the studio, I held up two books to you and in one, the text went all the way from the left margin to the right and in the other one, it didn't. You could say straight away that, that the second one was the book of poems. So, so we already have this idea that poems look different than prose. And, you know, I, I start to wonder, why do they look different than prose? Well, one of the reasons is the lines are broken like this because they're, they're made to imitate the process of thinking, mm. the sounds, the rhythms, etc. And some people have come along over the evolution of poetry and played with that idea and made what we might think of concrete poems, a poem about an urn that has the shape, shape of, of an, an urn. urn. And, yeah. you know, those kind of things are played with fonts, are played with various things. Then the internet came along and we're, we're now children of the internet age and my children are certainly children of the internet age. So their first contact with all art forms are probably going to be online. So I started thinking about through the process of, um, or through the period of, of lockdown and pandemic, etc., and maybe before that, what do you do with, as, as a poet, as a published poet, mm. what do you do with your poems? Do you just, as a, you know, in a sense, photograph them and put them up online? Or do you allow the internet to have its wicked way with them? <laughs> Any of us who, who have ever bought a Kindle book of poems yeah, know yeah. that the, the, the lines and the shapes of the stanzas, etc., are not honoured. They're the first thing thrown out by free-flowing mm. text. So... So the poem becomes a different thing in every medium. If I read you a poem here now, it becomes different. It has, it has different an character aspect and quality. To it, yeah. I don't, yeah, it has an oral aspect, but it also has a temporal aspect. It's not just a two D object in the air. It's something that takes time, and and the pauses become significant in a way that you might say the blank spaces aren't. Yeah. So so. Through all of this kind of meandering, this is what poets do looking out the window. They try to solve problems that 
don't exist. Try to work out what poetry should do. Well, exactly. So and I guess as the, as the title of the the event on Saturday afternoon suggests, yeah. What do, what, what what do poems look yeah. like? So from what's myself, the shape to, of poetry? Yeah, exactly. To, to the early part of the pandemic, I found myself like lots of people restricted to a relatively small footprint. Myself and the dog, and and I've always written on the hoof. I have a, a notebook or, or or a notes app in the phone. I'd be making little notes, but I'd also be taking photographs. And then I start to think, well, if I could take a little clip of this tree and I could take, you know, just yeah. here yesterday, it looked different than it will next week, etc. So the process of composing and editing started to get nicely and interestingly blurred. Um, and then I pulled the muscle on my back and I was lying in, lying in bed and there are all sorts of wonders in our phones and in our pockets. And there's a little editing app called Luma Fusion. And it allows you to put this clip here and this clip here and have a fade between them. So I start making little social media. Poet and filmmaker. Poem, the poem, I still think of them as poems more than films yeah. because yeah. it is just an incentive to me to write in another way. And I right. think that's always good. And sometimes with music, sometimes without music, sometimes with sound effects. But basically, they're poems that... that I hope, have some kind of visual appeal, even if it is only to hold you long enough, like an MTV video, long enough to look into space yeah. while you hear it. Well, that's interesting that you make that connection with the music video, because I suppose it's the song and the song and the video. If I wasn't a failed musician, I would be <laughs> a successful musician, yeah. Tell me a little bit, well, I want to play a little bit of, of some of the poems that you have um, the statutes of Emo Court. Yeah, Emo Court is is one of those um, statues. Statues. Sorry, I that. Yeah, yeah. St- st- it's it's one of those big houses um, mm. uh, of which we still have a number in Ireland, um, in my native county Leash. And one of the things that has always appealed to me, I've been going there since I was a kid, is that there are these plaster statues in various stages of uh, disillusion and disarray around the place with the wire. Uh, you know, built around a kind of a wire core. And and through the period of lockdown, I started thinking about them. I had photographs of them, little clips and stuff like that. But I started thinking about them out there. And as, as kids, when we'd walk by them, I was a, a kung fu teenager. When you'd walk by them, the statues would move. I would stay still. Do, do you know what I yes, mean? Yes, yeah. That, that effect called parallax. We all know it from from watching far too much YouTube. <laughs> uh, so the statues would move. And I started thinking about the statues are continuing as the day goes on to do their Tai Chi and to earth themselves and, and to 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 um, to own the space they're in while we're all restricted into our spaces. And at the same time, my mother was in the in her last weeks as it happened in, in a nursing home and we were orbiting around her as well. So all of those ideas were were, were in my mind. So the, 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 the poem and the attendant video came out of that. Days and nights are like tides on the move. The light fades, then inky black Darkness advances. Our bleakest thoughts, faces trapped behind glass. Now the statues on their plinths of stone are like pieces left behind when some strange game of chess is abandoned. Games, the last things on our minds. Here, There, alone, together, wounded, they convalesce. 
whole worlds reduced to these small circles. They remind us of ourselves. Weeks turn to months and overhead the bright calligraphy of cloud on sky is swept aside until all the mind's eye can see. They're just I'm, I'm taking it down in the middle of the poem there, obviously, Pat, and we haven't we haven't got to the section that then brings us in into your mother that's and that. If you were watching it on YouTube, it would be buffering now. I suppose <laughs> you could say, but I mean that's the other thing about as someone who makes poems, you can't be precious about them. You know, someone might might walk past the window where the poem is playing, or walk past the screen where it's playing, and and its job is to hook you, or its job is to is to put a hook into your subconscious mm. that you come back to it afterwards. Um, you know, if if as a if as a writer you enter the new media, you're at the mercy of all these yeah. things, ads and everything else. And that's just that's just the way it is. So uh, on Saturday, then, are you going to play literally the whole poems and show the films and let us hear the music? Is that is that what the plan is? And discuss I don't know what you were at. I don't, I don't, no, <laughs> uh, yeah, I might do that. Some of them are very short, and and uh, that one, you know, to mm. me is long. It's about seven minutes, but most of them are two or three minutes. Again, yeah. they're kind of pop songs. I'm the MTV generation, and if you can't do it in three minutes, get off the stage, <laughs> you dinosaur! Really, you know that has. That has to be part of it. But it's also, it is also, you know, about our attention span when we're seeing something yeah. online. I want to finish up because um, it links perfectly in with the discussion we just had with Frank Berry and Josh O'Connor. This is yeah. um, Immigrants Open Shops. Tell us about this. Yeah, this is this is a poem. The, the, the title and the refrain of the poem, Immigrants Open Shops, was something that was said to me by a now deceased friend, an Iraqi poet, uh, Sargon Boulos, almost 20 years ago, 20, 15 years ago, when we were talking one day about immigration, the difficulties of being an Arab writer living in Germany as he was at the time, etc. And just out of the moment, he said, do you know, immigrants open shops. And I thought, God, yeah. And I also thought of my, my, my own father, who wasn't an immigrant, but he was from 20 miles away, who opened a shop in Port Leash. And I thought, isn't it one of the things that people own a place and they reinvent and they connect back to where they came from? It's the history of civilization. immigrants open shops. Let's have a listen to a bit of that. I'll give people full details of the event. Great to talk to you as always, Pat. Thanks a million, and Sean. You haven't still told me what poetry should do, but I kind of have a half an odd notion that it should do it in less than three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> right. it, should, it should be watching the gaps, I think. Watching the gaps. Okay, okay. Immigrants open shops. Thanks, Pat. Immigrants open shops, Sargon says. Eight years ago, already. Hard to believe. The troops back then, still gathering on the border of the homeland he hadn't seen in 20 years. One for the road, he asks. I shrug, why not? As my mother says, we'll be a long time dead. Sargon smiles. I'll remember that, my friend. But he's far away this evening, lost in himself, gazing out into our tidy garden through his pale reflection in the glass. A nervous shopkeeper as night approaches, hearing 
ominous voices in the dark. beautiful indeed immigrants open shops port poem there from pat Bourne. and pat uh, will be giving his talk the shape of poetry saturday at 2 p.m at the dunamis art center for full information on that and everything else going on at the festival leavesfestival.ie is where you should look New series, The English, is a co-production between the BBC and Amazon. Emily Blunt stars as Lady Cornelia Locke, an aristocratic English woman who comes together with Pawnee ex-cavalry scout Ellie Whip in 1890s mid-America to cross a violent landscape in search of revenge. The series stars, among others, Stephen Ray, Kieran Hines, Steve Wall, Emily Blunt, Jessica Spencer, uh, among the, the cast. Written and directed by Hugo Blick, the English is billed as, quote, the core themes of identity and revenge to tell a uniquely compelling parable on race, love and power. Joined in studio by, this evening by Jen Gannon, who's been watching um, the English Forest. Uh, it's such a powerful title because you, you don't know what you're going to get. Mm. And you find yourself in, in Midwest America. You find yourself in Wild West America, not Midwest. Wild West America mm. we're in. Uh, Emily Blunt's Lady Cornelia Locke, what is she doing in the Wild West in the, 18, in the 1890s? Yeah, basically she is grieving the loss of her son and she is hell-bent on revenge. So this is a story of revenge. Like on the outside, it looks like, you know, a romantic kind of lavish, epic, a kind of melodramatic weepy almost because you start, the minute it starts, it's with her voiceover, you know, talking about the stars mm. and you and I, and you do realise yeah. that this is a romance, but and you feel, you know, what to expect from it. But it is, she is there to find the person that is responsible for her child's untimely death. And she ends up, as you said, crossing paths with this ex-cavalry scout, uh, Eli Whip, who is played by Chase uh, Spencer, who was Sam in... The Twilight Saga, people would mm. know him from, and he's a Pawnee Indian, and he wants to reclaim the land that was stolen from him. So these two outsiders, star-crossed lovers, um, you know, they they come together for their own personal stories of revenge, and that is the basic plot. But it's the English is on. anything but basic, I yeah, have to uh, say. And, and the Kieran Hines character, who he meets very mm. quickly into episode one, where does he fit into it? Because we're going to hear a bit between him, Emily Blunt, and, and the Eli character shortly. He's a very menacing hotelier, and you do realise from. <laughs> Literally, a hotel, that's what the <laughs> place consists of, it's the middle of nowhere. It's a shack, basically. A hotel. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there that I think you get the flavour of what the rest of the season, the series is like when you see him and when you see their interaction together. It has a quite offbeat tone that happens quite quickly between them and there is this bizarre dinner scene between the two of them where he gives her a plate of prairie oysters which we know what they are and it makes it very clear that this is not going to be your average melodrama your average western it's you know it kind of moves in the space that's almost like Kill Bill with her you know seeking revenge and then also there will be blood that kind of gothicness yeah. of there will be blood yeah because it's very gory even if very gory very violent to, you know we, it opens with that lovely voice 
voiceover and the silhouette, but it moves off that pretty quickly. But let's have a listen to to a scene a little bit into the into the action. Uh, Cornelia, played by Emily Blunt, is talking to Mr. Watts, played by Kieran Hines. There's a man tied up in the background. Now we know who he is because mm. we've seen him a little bit earlier on. It's the character of Eli, and she she sees him tied there, and she goes over to to have a chat with him to see if she can do anything to help. Let's have a, a let's have a listen to that. I'll tell you what he did. He walked straight into my hotel and he asked me for a drink. That's what he did. He even said, please, as I recall. Oh, ma'am. You didn't have to mark him down for his manners. Just the color of his skin. Who beat him? <clears throat> You're most welcome. Do you speak English? What can I do? You alone? Yes. Anyone in there with you? No. Nothing you can do. Because I'm a woman? Not your fight. Don't pick it. So a clip there featuring Mr. Watts played by Kieran Hines, uh, Eli played by Chesk Spencer as we heard at the end there and Emily Blunt as the character of, of Cornelia and the, the, the Kieran Hines character is so menacing and he's very <laughs> violent in, the character is in, in like the first 30, 40 seconds of this scene. Yeah and, and that's the thing about it. It does... The the thing you have to remember about this it's a Hugo Blick Western, first of all. So it doesn't it's it's very freewheeling. And I think if anybody has seen any of his other work, like the honourable woman that had Maggie Gyllenhaal in it about, you know, the Anglo Jewish businesswoman in that kind of web of intrigue and mystery and his very kind of violent adaptation of the shadow line, you know, he doesn't make things easy for his audience. He wants you to feel uncomfortable, but also he wants you to pay attention all the time. And there that's where it kind of falls down in a way, because there is a amount of like subplots and characters to keep track of. I mean, you've, as you said, you know, every character actor seems to be in it. You have mm. Steve Wall, you have Toby Jones, you have Tom Hughes. By the time Rafe Spall turned up as this employee of Tom Hughes's Catelyn Porter, I was overwhelmed. Like, and I can understand he's trying to strive for this kind of Coen Brothers feel of this, you know, idiosyncratic uh, characterization. But at the same time, I can imagine that people will feel that it is impenetrable at yeah, times. How, how, how many episodes did you watch, Jen? Because I watched about the first, I'd say, f- maybe 30, 40 minutes of the first episode. Mm. And I thought, that's a lot of detail I already have in my yeah. mind. Now there's six episodes and mm. that's the thing and I like the fact that there is six episodes yeah. it's not l- drawn out but the, the downside to that is he's trying to squash too much information into the six episodes so it can feel like you feel like you're losing the grip of the story sometimes because there's too much going on and I think it's because he wants to put in as much as he can about all his conflicting feelings about America and the American dream and you know about 
this kind of the the land and the land grab and you know that and of kind course of that scene that we just heard with Kieran Hines saying well you know yeah he was a manager were fine but it was the colour of his skin exactly was the problem. how how much is Hugo Blick speaking to contemporary America oh here, completely it definitely is like I mean it is this about the ramifications of immigration and invasion and the profound physical and and, and sexual brutality of America and the bigotry um, that's all mm. interwoven into it and it really is you know these are the massive themes that are overarching throughout this and, episode. And, and if you have a huge big telly I'm guessing oh, it's that beautiful. Would be, it, it's I have beautifully to say it's shot. stunning like uh, the cinematography and it's by I think Arno Valls Colomer it's like a painting it really is and if you can watch this on the biggest TV possible you'll have you know you'll really be absorbed into the world it, it, it just looks stunning I haven't seen a TV show as beautiful looking as it in a long long time and I mean I think the best thing to do is probably not get bogged down into kind of those the intricacies mm. of the plot line and just enjoy it as a romp enjoy these colourful characters that appear in and out of it and you know kind of connect you're connecting with those two characters the main two characters and I think their charisma and their chemistry will, will carry, carry you through definitely and she's obviously invested in this she's a she's a, the executive producer as well Emily Blunt so mm. she's it's, it's a great role for her it is a meaty yeah. role for her you know she's not your typical heroine in one way she's not overly feisty and she's not overly vulnerable either so it strikes a kind of good balance alright that's Jen Gannon The English is the title of the series begins on BBC2 this Thursday and it will also be available on Amazon